Okay, everybody, welcome back to Wrap in Podcast. We are now at episode one. As a spoiler alert, some of you may have already watched episodes one through four. Some of you may have only watched episodes one and two. We're going to focus today on episodes one and two, and we may get to three and four to some extent, but we're not restricting ourselves from talking about episodes three and four as they come up. So if you don't want to be spoiled as to episodes three and four, you should just turn this off. Uh, In the meantime, though, we're ready to go, and we're really excited. Uh, Returning with us this week are uh, Kyle King. How are you doing, Kyle? Uh, I'm okay, but I'm worried about Coop. Which one? Both of them, actually. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, also returning is Ken. How are you doing, Ken? Uh, I'm doing well. Aren't there at least three at this point, Coopers? Well, there there were, but I think the other one of them turned into a small bronze-colored ball, I think. (laughs) That's Mm -hmm. fair. Um, Yeah, he... His purpose has been fulfilled. I don't count him anymore. He was manufactured for a purpose. Exactly, which has been fulfilled. And so, Ken, Walzak, your purpose has been fulfilled by returning to us here on the third episode of Raptor Podcast. And I am happy to introduce another contributor this week, Jeff Fallis. Jeff of Athens, Georgia, has the official title of Poet Laureate of Athens uh, and is therefore entitled to all rights and appurtenances thereto. He is here to talk to us about Twin Peaks. Jeff, tell us what it's like to see this uh, show after 24 years from when it first was broadcast. Well, I'm just trying to think if there's any other kind of cultural thing like this I can think of where it's been exactly the same way, where you had something that in the actual body of the work itself, we'll see you again in 25 years, and then it actually took place. I couldn't believe, even when it folded last year, you know, and Lynch was said it wasn't going to happen I don't know. I, I guess until 9 p.m. Sunday night when it actually was taking place, some part of me didn't fully believe that it was going to happen. And then when I was able to watch two hours of it and then found out there were two more hours I could watch, and I just, you know, it it was just amazing. I couldn't believe it. I was, I was really, and it, it, to me, it met and exceeded my expectations for what a new season of Twin Peaks would be. Yeah, I felt the same way. And I didn't, going into that Sunday night, realize that I was going to get to watch two more hours. I didn't either. I really shouldn't have for, for I really shouldn't have, but I, I couldn't help it. I had to. I had to get through all of it, and it was amazing. Yeah. So should I introduce myself? Sure. Like you guys did. Okay. I'll I'll, t- I'll talk. I'll talk about my connection to David Lynch and Twin Peaks. Uh, part of which is in in uh, you know entangled in, in with you, Jr. Uh, but I am a postdoctoral fellow and teach kind of in the English department at Georgia Tech in Atlanta. And I watched every episode of Twin Peaks when it originally aired in 1990 and 1991, when I was at the impressionable age of sort of 12 and 13. Um, And I sort of look at Twin Peaks as kind of a gateway drug for so many other things that I (laughs) got into later in life. Uh, But then I think my first rewatch of Twin Peaks occurred with you, JR. uh, And this would have been, JR and I were roommates during our freshman year of college at the University of Georgia. And I think this was around the time they put out the huge VHS set for the first time of the complete Twin Peaks. And my recollection, I can't remember if it was, it was in the summer, I believe before our freshman year of college. And we watched the entire run of Twin Peaks on VHS at your parents' house in Atlanta. And I think we started on a Friday night and then watched it and were, had completed the whole run by, I would say, early, like like Sunday at noon. Does that sound right to you? Do you remember this? Yes, although I think that we actually watched on the tapes that my father had originally recorded 
Okay. Yeah. I couldn't remember exactly. Yeah. I knew it was VHS, but I also remember looking at early Usenet groups at like five or six in the morning. And it was sort of like early in my experience with the internet. And I was like fascinated that there was this online community, you know, like alt twin peaks or something. And we were like asking them questions about things and then getting responses and how foreign and strange that seemed to me uh, at that time. But I, yeah. So I remember rewatching the whole thing and then I've rewatched it probably three or four times since then on, you know, every DVD, Blu-ray. And I think each time I've watched it, it's been with a different person and it's been really interesting to talk about it and, uh, you know, discuss it with, with different people each time through. And I also will say one of my Lynch bona fides, I have been to David Lynch's nightclub Silencio in Paris, probably about five years ago. And it was the place where I spent the most money I think I've ever spent on a single drink, a single cocktail. So, which I believe was, was 20 euros, but it involved absinthe and it was lit on fire and it was in a, it was in David Lynch's nightclub. So I felt like it was worth it. Can I just say, I gave strong consideration to going to Silencio when I was in Paris, but I was told on very good authority that the cocktails there were terrible. Um, and, uh, so I, I did not go on principle and then I regretted it evermore. The, the most amazing thing about it was that it had, it has like a hidden movie theater inside it that like I stood by for maybe an hour and a half before I realized there was one down this dark hallway and then there's sort of, I don't know, it's it seated maybe 20 people, uh, but it was a very Lynchian movie theater that just plays movies all the time. So that was that was my favorite. thing. So it's it. like come for the 20 euro absinthe cocktail, stay for the withered old crone behind the dumpster out back. Pretty much. Yeah, <laughs> that's great. Well, uh, let's talk about episode one. We start with Coop and Laura and the Black Lodge, the Red Room, and Laura telling Coop, I'll see you in 25 years. A scene that we've seen a lot lately on advertisements on the internet. And then we see Laura Palmer's prom picture, prom picture uh, the girl screaming across campus from episode one, or rather the, the pilot. And then we get sort of the new opening theme of the show. The same music, but instead of the bird and the scene of the sawmill, which of course has been burned down for some time now, we get an overhead aerial shot of the falls by the Great Northern, the trees, uh, and then like we create these shots of the chevron floor pattern of the Black Lodge and the red drapery. So, Ken, do you have any thoughts on the new intro? Not on the intro specifically, though. I, I quite like the Red Room stuff. Um, I'm, I was impressed at how seamlessly the old and the new were woven together with that. I, I think that one of the only times I gasped audibly in, in Glee, there, was, there were two or three in the first couple of episodes, but one was with the uh, the later Red Room scene uh, when Laura reprises the, I, I feel like her, but sometimes my, or I feel like I know her, but sometimes my arms bend back. Uh, like the the way that that was seamlessly redone and updated, and the way that like old Cooper looked to my mind precisely the same as he looked at the end of the original series was really really impressive. Yeah, that's right. And so the first scene is of the giant sitting across from Cooper, and a kind of heavy gray grayscale shot that. Ken, I think you know it is from Missing of Eraserhead, and that's definitely true. Uh, and I don't want to go over like every line of the episode, but seemingly these are going to be important words. And what we have is the giant saying to Cooper, listen to the sound, it is in our house now. And then he's got an old-time phonograph player, and it starts making these 
clicking noises. And the giant says, it all cannot be said aloud now. And the giant says, remember 4.30, Richard and Linda, two birds, one stone. So there we go. So who are Richard and Linda? Well, I'll jump in here, JR, because I, I do have a theory on this and, and just really stay with me on this. This is going to be clearer to those who have read The Secret History of Twin Peaks. I think Richard is Richard Milhouse Nixon, uh, who was very prominent in The Secret History. Uh, as we know, after Project Blue Book was shut down, uh, he funded the secret UFO research, which led ultimately to Garland Briggs being stationed in the listening post in the woods outside of Twin Peaks. That, of course, later led him to receive the message uh, that he later transmitted to Cooper. And then, of course, we have indications in the secret history as well that Nixon had his own private UFO library, uh, which he wisely kept away from the Oval Office. Uh, so there are, there are hidden off-the-books papers that Nixon has somewhere uh, that aren't in any official government archive. Uh, but, of course, we have in the secret history someone who very tellingly refers to himself or herself as the archivist. So there's a real effort to mine for this material. Well, where do presidents keep their confidential papers? Well, where they keep them is in their presidential libraries. And the Richard Nixon Presidential Library is located at his birthplace. Uh, they're at 18001 Yorba, wait for it, Linda Boulevard in Yorba Linda, California, uh, which is where I think that those uh, those sorts of papers would be kept. Of course, we know some of these scenes were shot in Southern California. They weren't all done up in Washington. Uh, we've seen a lot of movement already around the Western part of the United States. And I think somebody, one of the Coopers, maybe both of the Coopers, is going to wind up at the, at the Nixon Library. And I think that's where Richard and Linda come in. Now, I will tell you, I have been going through the, the Douglas Brinkley and Luke Nichter transcripts of the Nixon tapes. And I'm hoping that somewhere in there, I haven't found it yet, but I'm hoping that this theory will be confirmed by there being a tape where H.R. Haldeman says something surprising to the president and Nixon responds, wow, Bob, wow. But I haven't been able to find that yet. That, though, will really bring it home for me that this theory is correct. Well, that's fantastic. You heard it here first on Wrapped in Podcast with T. Kyle King. Richard Nixon may be at the center of the mystery of Twin Peaks, The Return, the third season. That's much better than my theory, which was just that kind of a reunited husband and wife team of Richard and Linda Thompson are going to be the final musical guests in episode 18 uh, as the credits roll. So, Can I say that I'm glad we're... You know, those are the only Richard and Linda's I could think of, but, but uh, Kyle seems much more elaborate, conspiratorial. I like it. Yeah, I'm glad that this is the podcast to put that theory out there in the world. I, I want to be the person on the podcast to say that I think that is completely insane. And there is no chance that that is actually what is going on in this episode. But that I'm so glad that we are the ones who are breaking this, uh, this completely bad theory. Um, I, does anybody have a thought about the numerology yet? There are an awful lot of numbers. I tried to go through and, and bold them in your uh, summary of everything, uh, JR, in, in the hopes that we could start putting them together like uh, Carrie Matheson on a big board in Homeland or something. But uh, has anybody started doing that? The, the one, you know, from this scene that we're talking about seems more mysterious. The, the kind of 253 later on seems keyed into the time, you know, when bad, are we going to call him Cooper Ganger or Doppel Cooper? I don't know, whatever, Bad Dale, 
seems that the two five three seems keyed into the time when he's supposed to be pulled back into the Black Lodge, uh, but the four thirty in this scene seems mysterious. Yeah, when I when I first saw one and two before seeing three and four, uh, I had assumed because of of what the what the doppelkooper said to Daria in the hotel room when he was asking about coordinates. I had assumed that all these numbers eventually were going to add up to. Right. Uh, yeah. to geographic coordinates. But but yeah, I think Jeff's absolutely right that clearly we see 253 born out later. Uh, presumably 430 is going to come into play that way somehow later on, but we don't know that yet. I was going to ask too, just generally, what your thoughts were about, you know, we opened, this is our first new Twin Peaks and it's black and white. It seems sort of like the Red Room, uh, but I feel like this was a different place. And I also wanted to point out that we keep referring to Carol Strukin's character as the giant, but he's officially credited as question mark, question mark, question mark, question mark, question mark uh, in the credits right. uh, for this scene. So there might be a possibility that this is a different iteration, you know, or a different, I, I almost feel like we will return sometime later in the series or the end. This seems like a, a place we'll loop back to uh, this scene between Cooper and, and this character again. So I, I felt like it was, I'm not sure, but not, uh, somewhere different in some way than the red room scenes uh, later on in, I guess, episodes one yeah, and two. The thing about three. this scene is that I think it clearly establishes that we are in the world of David Lynch's auteur. And it's the opening scene of the new show, and it's completely weird and inaccessible, especially to someone who's unfamiliar with the show. If you were to show this to the average person off the street, I can't imagine that they would be like, wow, I really want to keep watching this. Yeah, and yet the reviews from tv critics and uh casual viewers and the like have been almost universally positive which i find completely fascinating and i i have sort of an overarching theory about it which is that prestige tv as it uh, is known has evolved in a way that prepared people for this kind of craziness like i think there's a, a lot of signifiers in these first few episodes that people now associate with quote-unquote prestige TV. So mystery and tourism and darkness and a certain kind of uh, somber mood are all things that people look at and they think, oh, I, I know these tropes from Lost or I know this from uh, True Detective or something like that. And we, we could get into the merits of all these things that came since the last go-around with Twin Peaks, but I, my, my only guess as to why people who aren't Lynch aficionados would be into this would be that they've been sort of conditioned to expect their high-quality TV to look and feel a certain way. Although even then, this is so awfully the Lynchian version of that in terms of the pace of things and the the aesthetic concerns that I'm still I'm still a little bit surprised. Yeah, I I, I, I don't think that I've seen anything at this level in so-called prestige TV. I mean, the show Carnival got a little weird and symbolic in a way that other show other so-called prestige TV shows didn't. I don't know if any of you guys are familiar with it. But I can't, I mean, I see what you're saying. You know, Twin Peaks kind of established the, the concept of prestige TV before all those shows came out. But it, I do think it stands alone. It's, it's a lot weirder than anything that I think any, has ever been on network TV and still weirder than the prestige TV you'd see on the cable networks. Well, and we also have in the midst of, of the giant, or as Jeff points out, whoever this character is, uh, in the midst of him saying all these seemingly nonsensical things, you have this this very flat statement from Cooper saying, "I understand." You know, and there's this there's this sense that 
Cooper gets this. Cooper is, is you know, as he was described at the time, is, is the Boy Scout walking the little old lady across the street in hell. And, and he's sort of the guide uh, who knows where he's going, even if he doesn't quite understand how he's going to get there. So it, there's that little bit of confidence that this is eventually going to loop back around and is going to add up somehow. Uh, it may not be two plus two equals four add up, but it's going gonna, it's gonna to circle back. And, and I think people are willing to go along for the ride. Yeah, back to where we are in the black and white scenes with the giant or many question marks and the Mysterians or whatever we're calling him. Uh, I I think about this as part of the broadening out of the geography of the Red Room, the other place, the Black Lodge. You know, there's a lot of references to these places in the original series, and I think Lynch is just very keen on using his time and budget and creative faculties to explore them now. And certainly in the first 20 minutes or so of episode three, we're going to we get a lot more of uh, these other places, this other plane that uh, Cooper finds himself on. So it wouldn't surprise me at all if, if that were taking place in another slightly off part of uh, the other place. The White Lodge, the Grey Lodge. Right. Uh, you don't know. Uh, so we get a cut then to uh, a man getting out of a trailer, wearing sunglasses. He removes his sunglasses and of course he's wearing the trademark 3D glasses of Dr. Jo- uh, Jacoby. So Jacoby receives a shipment of shovels. That's about it in the scene. As one does. There's actually a couple of interesting things about that scene to me. The the dialogue seems like it's recorded from very far away. It's a lot softer in the mix, and there, it's it's uh, played over a very long shot of the people in there. So it seems like the show is telling you it's not that important to know what this exchange is about. You're supposed to just sort of bask in the griminess of this whole thing without actually knowing what they're discussing. But it did really set the stage for me for how the residents of Twin Peaks were going to be treated over the next several hours, because there's there's no loving return to Twin Peaks High or or the Double R. It's 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 a lot of much older, grimier, more depressing versions of the people we've come to know and love from the old series. Not that I ever loved Doctor Jacoby; he was always very gross. I, he did have an incredible cape. Uh, in episode in season two, he he showed up at the Double R Banner in an incredible cape. Okay, so the next cut is I, what I, I think is the most beautiful photography of Manhattan I have ever seen. Uh, it's this amazing widescreen shot of yeah. Manhattan, and uh, I've never seen a shot of the city that beautiful before. It, it actually reminded me of seeing the movie Interstellar, which which I saw in IMAX. And the scene where he, they like go into the black hole, which was something to see in IMAX. And, you know, I just, my, my throat dropped out watching it. And I felt almost the same way seeing the scene in my head. And then the camera turns to a building that was where we're going to see the scenes that take place in Manhattan and this in the next episode. It isn't just this episode. And I think it's a real interesting looking building. My first thought, it's a... It's a sort of windowless building. It's not a high-rise. It's like a, a, a mid-rise type building. My first thought is that it looks like one of those AT&T buildings that you see in major cities that have no windows and look really creepy, uh, where they've got you know telephone switching devices. But looking at the building again and the architecture, it has a certain kind of Mediterranean aspect to its architecture. And it looks to me like a mason building, a mason hall. You know, I, I don't know. In Atlanta, 
and connected to the Fox Theater, there's some towers that look kind of the same, where, where there are no windows, but there's definitely a Masonic thing going on, or a Masonic Lodge building in a major city. Did any guys have any thoughts about that building? Not, not about the, the exterior of the building, but when, when we go inside the building, um, I think we, we definitely start to get confirmation of, of Ken's theory from last week, which turned out to be spot on, that what we were going to get was going to be Lynchian, but it wasn't necessarily going to be the David Lynch of Twin Peaks, that it might very well be a David Lynch uh, whose aesthetic had changed over the intervening years. And, and here we start to see some of that. You know, Ken mentioned last week the, uh, the dream breakers, the, the commercial breaks that, that forced Lynch to break things up. And, and this is really the first scene where we get an idea that, you know, he's got all the time in the world. You know, he was paid to film this 400-page document that he then broke up into ever how many episodes it worked out to. He wasn't limited or confined by any specific set of episodes. And so you start to get this exceedingly slow pacing. You start to get this, you know, painstakingly uh, taking its time uh, as if it has nowhere to go and is in no hurry to get there. I mean, I, what, the note that I wrote to myself was fire meander with me because it just takes however much time Lynch wants to take, uh, and you get some of that, you know, flat affect that you see uh, that came out in the South Dakota sequences as well, where you get, you know, things that are reminiscent more of, of sort of a lost highway aesthetic, more so than the, uh, the original series Twin Peaks aesthetic. And this was the first scene where we really saw, this is going to be David Lynch turning it all loose. I love Fire Meander with me so much that I will now apologize for calling you insane earlier. Kyle, that was Fire, fire Meander with me. <laughs> oh, no, that's okay. I, I'm... <laughs> yeah. uh, I, I associate the flat affect more with Inland Empire, I think, but Lost Highway is a, is a good reference point, too. Uh, and certainly we're about to get the first driving scene that uses kind of the Lost Highway first-person driver-side POV, right? But, yeah, I, I, I think that if I had known going in uh, that this would be what the head of Showtime apparently described as, quote, the pure heroine version of David Lynch. I might have uh, had uh, even more of an expectation that we would get something on the Inland Empire side. Uh, but yeah, I think that that, that definitely panned out, as, as Kyle said. Yeah, watching this sequence especially also, um, you know, I was it reminded me more so of like Mulholland Drive, even more so than Lost Highway or Inland Empire, and just that there's these scenes that seemed like normal scenes you would see in a TV show or a movie, but just held a beat too long, you know, or just that there would be these long pauses or repeated dialogue. And I kind of got a sense that, and this is sort of along the lines of what I was expecting though, that if the original, whatever, first hour and 50 minutes of the film Mulholland Drive, you know, was a pilot, you know, and it had continued, you know, I, I felt like it would have felt kind of on some level, like the new Twin Peaks. I, I felt like, you know, if, if Lynch had been able to develop Mulholland Drive, to whatever, a 10 or 12 episode. I, I wondered if there were some ideas he didn't get to continue that he's... Yeah, that's a really good point. And my notes mention Mulholland Drive in specific connection with these scenes with uh, Tracy and... Uh, was it, it yeah. seems like a... Uh, seems like the kind of job you might audition for in the Hollywood of Mulholland Drive. Like, you think you're going in for a role in some sort of a production, and actually you're auditioning for a job where you sit on a couch and watch a supernatural box all day? <laughs> that seemed very Mulholland Drive to me. Yeah. 
Well, and I, I sort of took the box itself to be kind of a throwback to the beginning of Firewalk with me in that, you know, you've got that sense of sitting there watching this glass box and hoping that something's going to happen, which is, of course, what we do when we sit down and watch television. So, I mean, I think there's a little bit of, of, of meta to that in, in the same way that there is to a lot of what Lynch has done since Twin Peaks of sort of looking back on, on television. And I think he looks back on his days in television a lot less fondly than the rest of us do. You've got Sam on the couch and uh, Tracy comes with coffee. She's trying to get into the room where Sam is, you know, watching this box, but she can't come in. There's a very gruff security guard. Uh, she tries to see Sam's code to get in the door. And there's a little bit of flirting about how she's a bad girl. Uh, and that's it. You know, then we, we, do, we go back to Twin Peaks and we have a kind of inconsequential scene of Ben Horn, who's still running the Great Northern. He's got an assistant played by Ashley Judd who comes in briefly. And then Jerry Horn comes in. Uh, and he certainly looks like, uh, you know, one of a different bear than Jerry, as if he's from Vermont. He's now basically a hippie with long hair and a beard. He's got a hydroponic grow operation that's tripling revenue for the horn businesses uh, and then proceeds to consume some edibles. At one point, it, I think uh, Jerry asked Ben about his attractive co-worker, Ashley Judd, and Ben initially protests and it, tries to show that he's turned over a new leaf. Also noted is that Ashley Judd is married, but Jerry says that that never stopped him in the past. I didn't really get a lot out of this episode other than just a kind of uh, callback to what's going on in Twin Peaks that really didn't draw the viewer in emotionally, but was mildly entertaining. Uh, yeah, I, I sort of had the same reaction to it. I mean, I, I love the fact that Jerry Horn, who, let's face it, we all know would have been disbarred by now, uh, is in the legal pot business. I, I think that's perfect. Um, you know, there was a touch of nostalgia to it that, like a couple of the elements, uh, seemed a little forced. You know, there's there's this Ashley Judd is standing there just for the sake of being Ashley Judd in Twin Peaks, and they're having this exchange, and they're talking about a skunk being in the hotel, and 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 the story didn't really go anywhere. It was aimless. It wasn't terribly inventive, and and I think it was supposed to recall. Uh, you know, what we saw before without really being the same thing. I mean, I'd put it, put it in the same category with the James is still cool. He's already been cool line. No, he wasn't ever cool. And, and those are points that I think tried a little bit too hard uh, to get us back to where we were uh, without really doing the things that made us love the original. Well, I, I sort of felt like, you know, one thing I guess I was interested in, in these kind of return you know, the, the scenes, the checking back in on, on Twin Peaks, it did seem like the characters, you know, what happened to like, say, Jerry Horn or Dr. Jacoby, like they're kind of, you know, 25 years on kind of fate, or I guess, or wherever they were, it seemed in keeping, you know, with their characters. I didn't see any like thing unbelievable. And it did seem make sense to me that Dr. Jacoby would be kind of living in the woods, you know, doing mysterious kind of things. And it did seem peaceful kind of where he was. And then, it made sense that Jerry Horn would be <laughs> in the legal pot business. Uh, and I guess, you know, the reformed Ben Horn seems in keeping with what was happening to his character after the kind of civil war interlude in the, the final few episodes of, of, of season two. But I also did feel kind of like, and I saw this um, in the scenes, you know, with Andy and Lucy kind of later on, almost like a 
purposeful refusal of nostalgia or the kind of coziness of uh, Twin Peaks, you know, that they don't go, that, like you said, the seeds don't seem like they go anywhere. We don't get kind of Angelo Battle of Menti jazz kind of underneath it, as we got with lots of the quirky scenes in the original series. But it does seem like these kind of, not so much so like, I guess uh, we'll, we'll get to it later, but the scenes with uh, Hawk and the Log Lady, which seemed to me more emotionally, I guess, substantive and closer to the heart of maybe what Lynch felt the show was. But I think in some of these other ones, he was like, okay, we'll give you a check back in with these characters. But maybe if you're looking for an easy yeah, nostalgia, nostalgia is a really good way of putting it. And uh, I think this is as good a time as any to mention how angry these scenes make me. I, I feel like irrationally upset at how depressing these people's lives are, according to Lynch's version of uh, the future of Twin Peaks. I almost wish I could watch the old series as an adult and the new series for the first time as teenage me. I think teenage me really wanted the pure heroine version of David Lynch and thought anybody else involved was sort of detracting from its quality, whether it was ABC or Mark Frost or anybody else. And now I miss the Battle of Menti shuffle jazz so much, and I miss the balance between quirky and fun and soap opera uh, E and grim dark. And now all it seems that we have is grim dark and the, the, most I'm reminded of it is when we get these Lucy and Hawk and Andy sequences. They all have the same jobs. They are all 25 years older and they are all so depressing. When you combine it with like the flat affect thing we were talking about before, it just, it, watching those scenes, if I had not had affection for these characters from the previous series, I would have just thought, these people are morons and and they're really really unpleasant to watch and partly it's that they've taken the characters out of the scenes with them that bring the sort of like forward momentum whether it's cooper or sheriff truman and partly it's that they used to be endearingly slightly dim or endearingly quirky or whatever you want to call it and now they just come off as dumb dumb and it, it really makes me sad yeah, I mean, I, I can't argue with that when it comes to uh, to Lucy and Andy. I think that's been kind of overemphasized, and, and certainly later on when we see Lucy just not being able to grasp the concept of the cell phone. Uh, I don't I don't know that I would agree with that when it comes to Hulk, though. I mean, his his character seems to have to have aged and and become wiser, and and he does at least have a new title of deputy chief, which is odd because there is no chief they're all the sheriff but in any case he's at least got a cool sounding new title but it's interesting to mention flat affect because the next scene we have is the appearance of bad coop or Ganger or whatever you want to call him starts with him driving down a road to a what is apparently david lynch's remix of the song american woman uh which is really cool and i think ken you noted that this driving sequence reminds us of lost highway which it does and so we see coop pull up in a bad coop pull up in a mercedes uh he looks different Uh, he's got kind of leathery skin his eyes are blacked out and uh i personally think that he's got phil hartman's wig from playing the unfrozen caveman lawyer uh, on saturday night live um, and he dresses, you know, kind of weird with like a leather jacket and a snakeskin shirt. He knocks a rifle off a guy at the door of his house he's going into. 
Uh, and now we're at the house of Beulah, uh, where we meet some really weird characters. Badcoop is there to get Ray and Daria, who for some reason are back in the house, and Beulah fetches them. Yeah, so this is, this is I think, probably the most interesting or exciting scene for me watching the first episode. Uh, because now we really do get to see what happened to Coop 25 years later. He talks in a really flat affect. Uh, there's barely any inflection in his voice, which you'll recall is exactly how he was when he woke up in the Great Northern and needed to brush his teeth. Right. Uh, so what did you guys think about this, uh, this scene? I was going to say, on some level, we just get uh, one of the things I enjoyed about it was we get this return to... I don't know, the kind of classic Lynchian, you know, sleazy evil place, you know, that I felt like when we were hanging out with Frank Booth and Blue Velvet, you get this, you know, you get this in, I felt like some of the Deer Meadows sequences and Twin Peaks Fire Walk With Me, and then basically all of Lost Highway <laughs> and a lot of Inland Empire, you know what I mean? So there's these kind of just bizarre places of evil and crime and these kind of collection of grotesque characters. So on some level... I don't know. I've always found those those sequences fascinating, uh, but I guess it also did answer, confirm, I guess, our suspicions of you know what happened. You know, was Bad Coop, you know, still kind of out in the world? What would have happened? Like, would he still be sort of like, you know, looking like uh, Agent Cooper, or would he have metamorphosed into something entirely? And it does give us an answer, I guess, to that question as well. So I did find it kind of terrifying, uh, and uh, but also exciting you know for me to sort of see where this story was going to be picked up and that he did seem worse i guess uh, <laughs> uh than some of my suspicions would 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 have been for what had happened to, to the cooper gang or doppel cooper whatever you want to say yeah I, I agree with you there jeff i i this is for me where it started to pick up some momentum because you did see cooper as as he had been left in the world at the at the finale uh, it's odd that it starts to pick up momentum there because we're about to take a huge detour uh, into something that seems completely unrelated for a long time. But yeah, you got all those elements. You you had very little humor uh, in this uh, episode one and two, um, and, and it probably shouldn't be funny, but Cooper taking down the guard outside, and then again, when he comes inside, it is to me the funniest part of, of episodes one and two. So you've, you've got that, uh, that humor. Uh, you've also got some, uh, some of that typical David Lynch, Harry Cruz-like obsession with grotesquerie, uh, with the two figures sitting over to the side who serve no narrative purpose whatsoever, but just look odd. Uh, you've got the the American woman, which again, uh, Jr. I don't know if you caught it originally. I, I didn't see that it was the remix of American Woman until the, uh, the end credits, and it never would have occurred to me that that's what it was. But that to me is just a cool idea because you've got baby boomers are going to watch that. They're going to think of the original by the guess who uh, generation Xers like me, of course, are going to think of the Lenny Kravitz version and think of the video with Heather Graham and ask ourselves, how's Annie? So, you know, we've got picking up with evil Cooper at that point. Um, you've got other Lynch references uh, contained in the fact that he looks like he's raided Nicholas Cage's <laughs> wardrobe from wild at heart. Uh, and then finally, the thing that I love the most, and, and this didn't really get brought home to me uh, until the, the later scene in the second motel room with Chantal, uh, but I realized what Kyle McLaughlin was doing here, that just as Patty Duke had played 
uh, Helen Keller in The Miracle Worker and then played Annie Sullivan in the remake, just as Burt Reynolds had played Paul Crew in the original Longest Yard and then played Nate Scarborough in the remake. We've got grown-up Jeffrey Beaumont basically playing his version of Frank Booth at this point, and, and that's really who he comes across as to me. He's not as loud. He's obviously not got the nitrous oxide tank, but that same cold, calculating cruelty, that same purity of evil just really oozes out of him, and it starts with this scene. I think the point about grotesquery is interesting. I wrote down uh, Todd Browning. Um, it, it does seem like there's a, a disparagement of uh, backwoods-type folks by, by Lynch going on here, but uh, I, don't, I don't know that I've fully formed any kind of interesting thought about it. So, Yeah, well, you do have the sort of unnamed figures in the corner, one of whom you know appears to have some kind of uh, congenital birth defect who actually gets a piece of paper from Dario when she comes by, which I was wondering if that was like a social security check or something. Uh, there's, a, there's a deliverance quality to, to this, uh, this little house and the folks living in it. Okay, so now we go back to New York. We're in the room where Sam is uh, tasked with watching the glass box and switching out the SD cards for the cameras. Uh, Tracy has come back with coffee, uh, but the guard is gone. So she goes back into the room with Sam, and Sam tells her a little bit about what he's doing. But apparently he's, he's, he, this job is for him to get credits at college. He's an intern in a, pro, in a project that's top secret and funded by a billionaire. Why would you put an intern in charge of what would appear to be a fairly important project? I kept wondering, unless you seriously wanted him to mess it up, that it seemed to me that what we're about to see happen was in some level inevitable when you give someone who got no real investment in the project, you remove the security guards, uh, what proceeds to happen, which is that Sam and Tracy start making out and then they disrobe and appear to start having sex. Well, maybe not the sex was inevitable, but the fact that he would shirk his duties as an intern, not unpredictable here. As they start to make out and possibly I get, apparently start having sex, we hear a whooshing noise and a blackness appears in the, the box. We hear this sort of reversed whoosh uh, that it sounds like the sound is coming from the black lodge. And then we see this androgynous atmospheric body with a really weird head, one that looks like the brain tree's head that we'll discuss in a little bit, uh, appears. Um, I noted that on the body, there's a real distinct line between the brain tree head and the androgynous body. I'm wondering if that body is Ruth's body, since her head's been decapitated. I don't know. But we'll talk about that decapitation later. Uh, the glass in the box shatters, and the figure does something truly terrible uh, to um, Sam and Tracy, and they die screaming with blood everywhere. So this was obviously the most disturbing image that we'd seen in the show so far. To me, this is sort of the best of New Twin Peaks and the worst of Twin Peaks simultaneously. I don't think there's a better moment in terms of Lynch-iness 
in the first couple of hours than those shadows emerging or those figures emerging from the shadows in the empty box. That's that's just like that that really is pure black tar heroin lynch right there, right? That is that is the stuff. It is it is beautiful, it is incredibly cool to look at. It seems to come directly out of uh, the more terrifying parts of Lynch's imagination and uh, even if I hadn't watched episode one three times now uh, for for this purpose, I think I would have gone back and watched that sequence a bunch of times. Uh, I just I think it's incredibly effective. I love looking at it. In terms of worst of New Twin Peaks, you know this is our our poor girl Tracy here, whose entire characterization is that she shows up, is incredibly thirsty, uh, disrobes, and is killed nude. And I I just I got through watching the first couple of uh, episodes with with my wife and I. I started talking to her about this and we started making a list and there's something very so women in refrigerators about this whole endeavor right now and just just off the top of my head right new characters that we meet in the first two hours are tracy who is uh defined purely by her desire for uh the d uh and is killed while nude daria who is killed in lingerie after getting fairly brutally uh smacked around by bad cooper the wife in uh, South Dakota, who is like a conniving bitch and is then shot in the head by Bad Cooper. The Jennifer Jason Lee character, whose only defining trait is that she was jealous of the new character killed in her lingerie and that she is, per Bad Cooper, very, very wet. Uh, who am I leaving out? Uh, Ashley Judd, who's only there for the male characters to talk about whether or not uh, the very old male character has banged her yet. Um, I, I, I think this is a problem, in short. I think, I think it's a problem that the depiction of women in this version of Twin Peaks is that poor and that limited. And I was discussing this a little bit with JR earlier in the week, and I was reminded of some stuff that I looked at way back in my writing a college thesis about Lost Highway days when Isabella Rossellini, who dated Lynch for some time, said, if David wasn't making movies, I think he'd be killing women, um, which, you know, is a, is, is a problem. So uh, that's, that's my overall theory about, uh, about that and, and my great reservation about my otherwise high enjoyment of that scene, because I think the visuals of it are stunning and fantastic, and the horror movie element is handled incredibly well. But I also think I can't watch it without thinking about how gratuitous all of the violence and sexual violence and treatment of women is in the first few hours of this series. So that, that's my spiel on that scene. Yeah, he, he definitely took advantage uh, in that scene of the fact that he was on Showtime, went straight to the nudity, went straight to the, the violence. Um, the, the thing that occurred to me uh, at the time, right before they were brutally murdered, was this is probably the closest thing to a conventional Hollywood love scene that David Lynch has ever done, as, as warped and twisted uh, as that is. Uh, and, and you're right, uh, the, the visuals... Uh, are, are really neat. J.R.I. had not really noticed the, the line uh, separating the, the head from the body, although obviously in light of the subsequent decapitation, you've, you've, got to, you've got to take that part pretty seriously, particularly considering how Sam and Tracy die there. Um, the, and it's funny that Ken mentions talking about that, that with his wife, because uh, my wife and I watched this together, and, and this was a point that she made, not a thing that, that I caught, but um, her theory uh, her thinking about it was that it it looked 
like the Venus de Milo statue uh, from the the Black Lodge sequences. And, and if you go back through it, you know, we, we see uh, the Venus de Milo statue both with and without arms in the Black Lodge sequences in The Return. And we saw it uh, going back to the season two finale, where as Cooper is going back and forth between the rooms, uh, the Venus de Milo statue is there. And when it disappears, that's when Cooper steps through and he's, he's wounded. He's got the, the blood dripping right. from him from reimagining the, you know, the Wyndham Earl uh, stabbing with, with Caroline. So uh, there's something real dangerous about the, the Venus de Milo statue. Of course, it's there in the hallway later when the uh, evolved arms doppelganger drops him down into non-existence. And, and of course, that ties in directly with uh, with the glass box. So that was that was her theory about it. That again, when I went back and looked at it, said, "Yeah, I, I think that I think that holds up. I think that adds together." Yeah, I, I I was going to say, yeah, I agree with I guess Ken. This was an incredibly disturbing, you know, part of uh, episode one, and did seem like, as you were saying, the the, the pure heroine version of Lynch that the head of Showtime described. Also, one 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 theory that I read this week is that Tracy was perhaps hired to spy on whatever was going on in this room. And so she was perhaps purposely trying to seduce Sam and um, the scene later on in Las Vegas, which it's like, tell someone she has the job. One kind right. of uh, theory I read was that Tracy was perhaps hired to have access to this room. So that might give her character another layer of motivation besides the one that you, you mentioned. Um, and I, I also was, was going to see if this is some pretty obscure Lynch referencing here, but has anyone seen his contribution to the Lumiere uh, project from, uh, I think, like 96 or 97, Premonitions Following an Evil Deed? Uh, I was reminded of that is what I kept thinking of when the kind of, you know, uh, sort of black and white, it almost seemed like a character from like a silent film or like another dimension of, you know, kind of reality going through. And I, I thought about, I thought that's one of like Lynch's best kind of one, you know, his best film under one minute of his short films, that premonition falling in evil in which he, it reminded me of the character, you know, kind of, of that. Um, so I, I also did have, see if me, I'm not sure. Do we go back to, I guess we, should we talk about other, I guess, grand theories about the glass box, the anonymous, anonymous billionaire and so forth. when we return to the final appearance of the glass box in episode two, I was curious, did you guys have any theories about that, about who, you know, what the purpose of this box is, who the anonymous billionaire funding it might be? Uh, anyone have any speculations? Uh, it's obviously Don Justice Wheeler. Right, sure. It, yes. In, in league with Audrey uh, Horn. No, I mean, I, I don't know. I don't know who the billionaire is. Yeah, I mean, clearly there's, there's something big going on here, but I don't have any particular theories about who's behind it. I do think it's connected with the Las Vegas scene. I agree that it seems pretty likely uh, that I, I agree with, with Jeff's you know, theory or contention that Tracy was hired to distract Sam here. Um, you know, wh whatever else is going on there, I can't really say. But I, I did make that point before that it seems like this was intended to happen by putting you know, an intern in charge of this, what would appear to be a really important job. They were trying to lure whoever or whatever it is that came there by not having the security guard there, by having Tracy there and having a guy who they knew wouldn't really be responsible or take it seriously uh, in charge of the job. Like, you know, and would he even get to the point of you know, start having sex, which would you know, seem to attract the attention of a 
the denizens of the Black Lodge. I want to also, I don't want to just ignore Ken's comment about the fact that you know, violence against women is like a form of currency in the world of Twin Peaks. I think it was a form of currency in the first show where you did see from Shelley being beaten up to obviously the deaths of Laura and Maddie, those latter two deaths being critically important to what the motivations of Bob were. Uh, but it's, you know, it's disturbing that that's violence against women is a necessary and fundamental fact of the show. Well, and so much of it hinges on fear. I mean, I mean, when Josie dies, she's literally scared to death. And Bob shows up to ask Cooper rhetorically what happened to Josie. And then when Cooper is going into the Black Lodge, Hawk's preparing him for it and saying, if you go into it with imperfect courage, you'll be utterly annihilated. And of course, when he gets in there, he does show courage for a while. And, and then it collapses over the course of his time there. And then he's he's divided up. So um, certainly they trade in fear. Certainly these these characters who have who have come in, particularly in the form of Bob, um, the, their currency is fear. You know, they are going after people that they think they can frighten. Now, there may be some uh, some misogyny in the implication that, you know, maybe women scare easier and that's why they're going after them, that that may be what their thought process is. And if that's the case, then, you know, hopefully the emergence of Tamara Preston will, will kind of counterbalance that a little bit. But yeah, I mean, it's certainly, it's certainly there. And, and uh, I think uh, Ken's reference to women in refrigerators is spot on. I mean, that's, that's, uh, the thing that we see all too often is is the purpose of the female character is to have something horrible happen to her in order to explain the motivations of the male character. And, and absolutely, that is what came into play with Cooper and Wyndham Earl, uh, both with respect to Caroline and later with respect to to Annie Blackburn. So, that, I mean, that's that's a piece of it. There's no there's no getting around that. Uh, as far as as far as the billionaire is concerned, uh, I mean, you've got a lot of pieces there. You've got you know, Duncan Todd uh, bringing Roger in and handing him the money and talking about this terrible guy that he works for. You've also got someone out there uh, who's offering Ray and Daria five hundred thousand uh, dollars to kill Doppel Cooper at a very specific point. Not when he comes and picks him up, not when they have other opportunities, but if and only if he doesn't go back into the Black Lodge as he's scheduled to do. And maybe they talk to Philip Jeffries and maybe they talk to somebody who's uh, pretending to be Philip Jeffries. And then to top it all off, you've got uh, one last connection to New York that this Miss Hausman and her friends from New York who are coming to the Great Northern and apparently keeping their uh, their spa in business. So you, you've got some tie back from New York to Twin Peaks. I don't know if Miss Hausman has anything to do with it, but you know we don't know how any of these things tie together at this point. And one last thing, and I, I have to mention this because my friend Neil pointed this out in the glass box room. You know, of course, there's very little decoration in there, but there is a bonsai tree sitting on the table. Wyndham Merle is listening from the Black Lodge. Exactly. Yeah, I don't know. I don't, I don't think Bob seemed to do a number on Wyndham, but uh, who knows? There's a lot to talk about here, but I think we, we're like an hour of recording in, although I'm going to edit this down, and we still haven't gotten like halfway through the episode. Uh, so let's, let's, uh, let's, <laughs> let's go to Buckhorn, South Dakota, uh, where there's something that smells terrible in Ruth's room. Marjorie Green, who's a new character we've never seen before, uh, is very confused about everything, including her address. She calls the police. The police come. What you see in this scene is, is uh, you know, it, it's it's jarring to go from that extreme ultraviolet end to Sam and Tracy 
to this sort of like comical police procedural scene that we start to see. What 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 happens in the scene that I think, you know, it took it took me a long time to keep track of all the different names that suddenly start popping up in this new location for the show. Uh, you've got you know. The, the officers come and they talk to Marjorie Green, who she and her dog smell something in Ruth's room, and then they need to get a key. Of course, it turns out that Marjorie's got the key; she's just forgotten about it. But you know, there's this discussion about, well, who has the key? Well, is it the manager Barney? No, he's in a mental hospital apparently. And Barney leaves the keys with his brother. Not sure who that is, but Hank, Barney's friend, would know. Hank is a maintenance man in the back. So, like, already there are three different people, and my head is spinning. The cops go to the back of the building, and, and when Hank sees the cops, Hank says, Harvey, you son of a bitch. Now, that's four new characters. Hank, said, Hank has got a large satchel on a, and a garbage bag. And then, for some reason, Officer Olsen calls Hank Mr. Fillmore. Uh, but Hank's last name is Perlich, according to the credits. And then Hank says, did Harvey send you? The cops say, well, they're trying to find Barney's brother. Uh, Hank says, well, I, who told you I was going to say Chip? Now we've got, like, six new characters. Chip. Apparently, is Barney's brother, and Hank was going to go see him. I mean, it's just, it, it seems like this is all an extended red herring, and it's supposed to represent maybe a warning to people like me that they should stop trying to keep track of all these different people's names. <laughs> References is, uh, isn't Harvey like a magical rabbit from the 70s? Barney and Harvey got linked up in my head until I'd watched it again. I, I thought they were the same guy. I just, I was not making that link at all. Not the 70s, right? <laughs> it's, it's a little bit farther back than that, but yeah, there's, yeah, the Jimmy, uh, the Jimmy Stewart movie. Sure, sure. I, I totally did not uh, think of it that way, but yeah, it could, uh, it could be. I mean, there's a lot of weird stuff going on in this whole sequence, and it takes a really, really long time when you're sitting there thinking, uh, when are we going to get back to the Twin Peaks Sheriff Station? Do you know what it reminded me of since we have so many lawyers on this podcast? It reminded me of reading a really badly written appellate brief where somebody has to like explain the, uh, the facts of the case in a succinct fashion for some appellate court looking at the record for the first time. And all they're doing is just like listing names and connections in a way where your head spins after like the third or fourth connection. You're just like, how can you not do this in a way that tells a story? Like, yeah, that's, that's what the scene reminded me of. I'm sure it's intentionally. Like yeah, this, this was, yeah, the only kind of, I was on board with almost everything else and was completely engrossed in episodes one and two and this was i think the only part where i felt a little impatient so but it did end really well i mean it was a, yeah, yeah. It, was a, it was an amazing grand right, reveal right so they finally do get the key and the cops go in and they see a woman uh, in the bed dead with her her left eye you know completely blown out and what could be kind of a gunshot wound um and then it cuts back to hank who calls harvey and you know he's got it but you know there's there's some implication that that Hank has 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 got some ill-gotten goods um, with with Chip, and you know, and Harvey wants in on the deal, but Harvey apparently said he wasn't going to be part of it. The only thing I noticed here is that Hank is talking on the largest cell phone or smartphone or tablet I've ever seen. It's like an inch thick. It's like a speaking spell. Uh, it's totally ridiculous. <laughs> I don't think it was anything like a phone. Then we go back into the bedroom of Ruth, the now photographers were introduced to Constance, the investigator uh, for the Buckhorn Police Department. She's taking notes, and then Detective Dave Mackley appears. They uncover the body, 
and we get this gruesome scene that shows that Ruth's head has been completely decapitated and is set above the body of a rat, what appears to be a rather large man. Uh, we get the second uh-oh from Officer Olson, a classic police procedural scene done by David Lynch, and I, I, I've kind of enjoyed it all the way through. And we're back in Twin Peaks. Uh, Margaret, uh, the log lady, is on oxygen. She's holding her log, and she calls Hawk. Deputy Chief Hawk now. And she says that her log is a message for him. Something is missing, and you have to find it. It has to do with Special Agent Dale Cooper. Hawk asks, what is it? And Margaret says, the way you will find it has something to do with your heritage. This is a message from the log. And Hawk says, okay, Margaret, thank you. I found this whole sequence fascinating and really moving, you know, too. And I, I think one thing we haven't really talked about yet is the, the strange sensation of watching this, you know, when the actors, you know, playing these characters have, have subsequently died, you know? Um, and so, you know, we know that this must have been, I, th I think Catherine Coulson who played the, the log lady, you know, who is, uh, you know, a, I guess collaborator with Lynch all the way back to the days of Eraserhead. Um, she died in 2015. So this must have been shot early on. And, you know, um, I, it reminded me of, I think Richard Pryor's last uh, screen performance is in Lost Highway, you know, and I think yeah. um, Lynch, you know, it, it's, you know, he was suffering from, you know, multiple sclerosis, I believe. And, you know, just, I don't know, I, I it, there was something really poignant, I think, especially in this, you know, it's probably like the most moving thing for me in, in episodes one and two um, and just how visibly frail um, uh, Margaret was. And, you know, she, it, I, I, I love this sequence. And, and I think, you know, in both the scenes where she's on the phone with Hawk, you get a sense that, you know, it's the log lady saying goodbye to him and also kind of Catherine Coulson, you know, saying goodbye to, to the world of Lynch. And yeah, so it's, it's amazing to me as well. And Coulson was married for a while to Jack Nance. Right. And it feels like it was a nice, uh, connection back to, to him and the, the world of Eraserhead and uh, the, the Pete Martell uh, character as well. But I, I was just stunned at how seamless it seemed to be integrated. Like, I don't know when he filmed this or what he had in mind when he was doing it because, you know, this particular project, this particular version of Twin Peaks came together well after she died. So to have had this stuff in the can somehow already and to have it look... Uh, like it was shot ex precisely for this purpose is amazing to me. And it, it seems to come up a few different times with people that uh, are, are now deceased that he managed to get in this thing. And I, it's, it's an incredible amount of preparation. And I just, I, I'm stunned. I, I think it's great. Yeah, I agree. I loved it. Yeah, it was a great scene during the movie. The two things that I've heard are that the something's missing and you have to find it. Uh, there's a scene that think in season one where dale says that if he ever goes missing hawk's the one that he'd want to find him so clearly that could be right. the answer as to what is missing uh, the other is that it could be the pages from laura's diary that were removed by bob uh, i don't specifically recall one way or the other if those had ever been recovered i think the former theory sounds a little bit better but what do you guys think yeah, I think you're right. I agree. I think the first theory makes makes more sense because Agent Cooper is actually missing and has been for a long time. Yeah. And then I, I also wondered, this is 
you know, I think bringing in part of the contents of the secret history of Twin Peaks, the Mark Frost uh, novel that came out, you know, last October, but it also is referenced, I think, in when the references made to uh, Cooper visiting Major Briggs shortly before Major Briggs died, and I think taking some of his files, perhaps related to Major to Project Blue Book, that was another kind of idea I had that it might have something to do with what, you know, uh, Doppel Cooper took from Major Garland Briggs shortly before Major Briggs's death, which he may have been responsible for. But it'll probably be something, but it probably will be something none of us have thought about. So who knows? All right. So we go from the log lady to the Buckhorn police station, uh, where Constance has found a match for high school principal Bill Hastings all over Ruth's apartment. Uh, the head definitely belongs to Ruth, and the body is a John Doe. So the cops go to Bill's house, and they arrest him. Now, Bill Hastings is played by Matthew Lillard, which I think is the greatest casting choice so far uh, in uh, The Return. Uh, he does a great yeah. job. I was totally unfamiliar with his career other than in the show The Bridge, which was actually an American remake of a Scandinavian show where he plays a coked out uh, reporter. Uh, and he's fantastic in that show. But apparently his major other roles have been in like Scooby-Doo movies. But so this is great. I, I really think he does a good job. And Scream, uh, Wes Craven's right. movie. I think you, I, I can't remember if he's in one or two, but yeah, he, that, that's where I was familiar with him from, was from those movies. Right. So, Me uh, too. So he's this sort of very generic, nice guy character who is arrested. And it's interesting because he knows Dave, the detective. He doesn't really protest at the time. He just tells his wife he hasn't done anything wrong and that this is a mistake and just asks Dave to tell him what this is about and he's he's hauled off. That's it. Um, his wife, Phyllis, is pretty upset because the Morgans are coming for dinner. And then we go back to the sheriff's department in Twin Peaks where Hawk has got two baker boxes with red tape, red X's taped on all sides and brings them into a conference room. And he tells Andy and Lucy about what Margaret said and then... Uh, at that point, Andy notes that Cooper's been missing since Wally, who is their son, was born 24 years ago. Uh, there's a discussion about the fact that Wally was born on the same day as Marlon Brando. And uh, Hawk basically says, get those files we talked about and we'll start reviewing the memorandum of coffee and donuts. And I don't think there's really a lot to say about either of the two last scenes that I mentioned. But One thing that I will say about the, the jumping back and forth to the Twin Peaks Sheriff's Station is... I'm having a real problem tracking these chronologically. Now, I'm assuming that the scenes are arranged in the order in which they occur, which may or may not be a safe assumption. But Hawk gets a call from uh, from the log lady, obviously at night. And we see him, presumably the next day, bringing these file boxes up and saying to Andy and Lucy that it's late, even though it appears to be light out, Um Presumably it's late, it's at the end of the business day, and they're going to tackle these boxes the following morning. But as we go forward into three and four, I'm not seeing how they actually sit down and do this the following morning. And again, we may be jumping around in time, and it's just not clear to me uh, what, what sequence these things are happening in. But Hawk doesn't seem to be in any special hurry to bring these files up and reopen them and actually go looking for what it is that the log lady has told him he needs to be looking for. And the other thing, and, and this is, and I apologize uh, in advance for my obsessive compulsive, uh, obsessive compulsive attention to detail, but... Marlon Brando's birthday was April 3rd, 
There's no possible way if Lucy found out she was pregnant between February 23rd and the Monday after Easter, there's no way this kid was born on April 3rd. Yeah, I don't see how that's possible. That is a continuity error right up there with the assertion that James Hurley was always cool. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so closing out the rest of this episode, uh, we're back in Buckhorn where Bill Hastings is being questioned. The state police have arrived to assist, but they tell Dave he needs to do the interrogation since he's old friends with Bill and he might be able to get more of him to say. In the interrogation, Dave asks if Bill knows Ruth, and Bill says he barely knows her, but he's you know clearly being evasive about it, and that he's never been to her apartment. He asks about his whereabouts, and you know the, the jig is up when he asks about his activities on Thursday night after a curriculum meeting at the school. He leaves school at 9.30, got home directly later, 50 minutes later, at 10.15 or 10.20. Then he remembers that he gave his assistant, Betty, a ride home because there was something wrong with her car. And at this point, Bill asks for his lawyer, George. And that Dave goes a little bit off the book and does not stop the question. Uh, he asks if there's anything else he wants to say before we get the lawyer involved. Uh, Ken, who used to work for the ACLU, may have some words about that. Uh, and then uh, Bill asks what's going on, <clears throat> and but Dave reveals that Ruth was murdered and that Bill's prints are all over the apartment. Bill acts shock and is transferred to a holding cell. Bill asks to talk to Phyllis, and Dave says he'll see what he can do. The police arrive at Bill's house uh, with a search warrant. Phyllis is very concerned about the Morgans coming over, then reluctantly gives up the keys to Bill's Volvo. They open up the trunk, and of course, Dave, the detective's flashlight, is on the fritz, uh, just like so many other police uh, department-related lights have been in the past. It's flashing on and on as they open up the trunk, and then there's an ice chest. They pick it up, and under it is a piece of flesh. I thought it looked like a tongue. What did you guys think? Uh, or, Or an ear? Yeah, I couldn't tell what it was, but of course, yeah, that's that's what it made me think of, obviously, is, is blue velvet. It wasn't an ear, but I think that's what you're supposed to think of when you see that. Yeah, yeah, I, th- I thought of a piece of an ear and was trying to, to zoom in on my uh, uh, TV far enough to see if, uh, if, if, it could, if I could make it look enough like an ear to be a blue velvet reference. Maybe not. I think in one of the interviews Lynch gave this week, he said it was just a piece of flesh. People are trying to pin him down on, like you said, tongue, ear, other, but I think you said it's just. So, a piece that, of so, flesh, so. Uh, so yes. I think we're going to end this episode and probably start another episode about episode two. Having talked about this last scene, what are your sort of thoughts about the, that scene and your final thoughts about episode one? Uh, well, I, I watched them uh, all as one cohesive unit on Showtime. So in my mind, until you actually broke it out for me, I really didn't uh, know where the dividing point between one and two was. I mean, I, I thought there was a lot of good stuff. There's, there's a lot of stuff that is clearly uh, Lynchian um, in, in the whole thing. Uh, but again, not necessarily uh, something that comes originally out of Twin Peaks. Uh, David Lynch obviously has decided he's going to do his show his way. He's got just enough callbacks to the original series to, to warm the hearts of those of us who were there in 1990. Uh, but then he takes it off in completely different directions. I mean, so much of the Buckhorn stuff reminded me of Lost Highway uh, in, in the way it, it all came about. And of course, we later have him talking about, oh, he, he wasn't there, but he had a dream of being there and all this kind of stuff. Um, but it was it, it was cool. I, I mean, I enjoyed it. It wasn't necessarily what I was expecting. It wasn't necessarily what I would have asked for, uh, but I liked it. I also, yeah, I mean, I think in some of the 
interviews before the show aired, you know, Lynch was kind of saying he didn't want to call them episodes. He wanted to call them parts. And he thought of it as an 18 hour movie. And then I am also kind of like Kyle having trouble, uh, you know, dividing between episode one and episode two. And then also now that I saw three and four, I almost am looking at it as like the first four hours of an 18 hour uh, surrealist art film by David Lynch. Um, and it's, it's, you know, I guess the, the parts or the episodes, whatever are there for Showtime's convenience and maybe the viewer's convenience, but it is hard for me to uh, differentiate between them. So that does yeah. bring up a couple of interesting points for me. I mean, one, we're getting 18 new hours of David Lynch produced content and I was trying to do the math in my head between the last episode uh, of this podcast and this one. How long do you think his entire filmic oeuvre to date has been? Like 30 hours, maybe, of things he's officially released into theaters and onto television and everywhere else? This is you know, going to multiply the amount of Lynch-directed right. stuff in the world by something like an additional, what, 60%? It's going to add 60% of what was already out there? It's it's an amazing yeah. amount of stuff to process, right. and you know, thankfully we have this podcast to help us work through it. Um, but uh, I, it's it's just really really daunting to uh, to imagine, and I, I can't even uh, consider what teenage me would have thought and uh, how excited he would have been at the notion that Lynch would be producing this much content uh, on this subject in 2017. Oh, I was just also you know kind of chime in on that and sort of say that. Yeah, I mean, and there's also been an 11-year break, right. really, since Lynch did anything uh, significant, you know, since Inland Empire. And then since Twin Peaks, his works, with maybe the exception of the straight story, seem like they keep getting more narratively complex, you know, uh, and abstract in lots of ways. And so it's I, – I, I'm wondering – I was I found myself wondering at times, like, <laughs> if Mark Frost is – just on board with kind of Lynch at this point as he's trying to rein him in at some point, or yeah, I was, I, I didn't see much of it's all, I guess it's always hard to decide who is who, but I, I wasn't seeing as much of Mark Frost in these first few episodes. Um, no, that's as I was of, of David Lynch. So, yeah, but you do make a really good point about how, how much, how much David Lynch this is after such a long break. And I think you're right. Like it will give us, at least half as much, if not more. That's a great point uh, about Frost. And one Lynch. I think we should be yeah. attentive to as much as we can try to separate it out in our heads going forward. Um, I did just rewatch the straight story uh, when I should have been watching episode four uh, this week. So, you know, I'm prepared for all straight story related colloquies or digressions <laughs> that we might uh, decide to have. Um, um, now, the other point that I just thought of about uh, episode one in particular and the, the ending scenes is that I, I like this Buckhorn, South Dakota stuff. I think that it sets up an interesting new setting and mystery to go along with what we already have. And I think that I expected more of that when I was thinking about what the next generation of Twin Peaks would look like. Right, A new mystery involving some of the same evil forces in potentially an entirely new place. And if they had given us just that for an hour, for example, or that interspersed with like the Black Lodge in uh, the first episode, I probably would have been happier um, because I wouldn't have had the checking into Twin Peaks, a place that has been drained of all of its quirk and happiness. Uh, so I don't know. It's, it's weird to be in a place now where I feel like the thing I liked least about Twin Peaks were the scenes in Twin Peaks. But here we are. Yeah, no, I mean, that's the thing. We're, we're basically not in Twin Peaks anymore. The show has effectively become deracinated. But we'll see. We'll see how it plays out. I'm still enjoying it. 
So we have finished discussing episode one. We will be recording a discussion of episode two shortly. Uh, thanks for listening to Wrapped in Podcast. This is J.R. Parker, T. Kyle King, Ken Wozak, and Jeff Fallis. Uh, thanks, everybody, for that. Yeah.